Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we are back with a special guest, Shannon Kenrick Rochon, nurse practitioner. And this is a topic I've been waiting to cover for a long time. Hormone replacement therapy. We talk about this in terms of perimenopausal women. We talk about it for men. We also get into the weeds a little bit with low dose naltrexone. And this is a medication that, uh, you know, probably is underutilized in terms of reducing inflammation, uh, quite effective when it comes to autoimmune diseases. And I, I just, I, it's one of those things that I'd love for people to know that it could be in their toolbox when, when things aren't uh, working out for themselves. So, so Shannon gets into this. And just a bit of a backstory. She, I was referred from one of our uh, our producers, Tanya Croft, uh, to Shannon and the work that she's doing in the community, her clinic, and how she's changing lives. And uh, you know, with that holistic approach to health. So I, I, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this. We also get into a little bit overall wellness, how to stay healthy, talking about you know the fundamentals, exercise, sleep, uh, mindfulness practice, and. She talks about some of the recommendations she gets into her patients. So we, we cover a lot on this uh, podcast. I was waffling on whether to separate it into two, but you know what? There's a, you're going to find a, a lot of gems in this bad boy. Before jumping into it, let me tell you about solving wellness. Man, it's blowing up. Almost 300 members. There's a virtual platform for online workouts, yoga, mindful meditation, cooking classes, nutrition tips, and there's a community where we connect and do our best to reduce burnout among healthcare providers, you know, and you, you ask me, is something special. $99 for a year, $9.99 per month. And guess what? First month is free for real. Anyways, let's jump on it. Without further ado, Shannon Kenrick Rochelle. All right, Quadcast Nation, I am bringing, we are bringing Shannon Kenrick Rochelle Nurse practitioner, 
knowledge dropper. I'm telling you, this is going to be a fun one because I'll tell you, I do not know anything about low dose naltroxone, but one of our producers on the show, Tanya Croft, has been pumping up Shannon's tires big time, big time. So listen, Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I apparently have something to live up to. <laughs> yeah, big time. <laughs> no pressure. I'm just kidding. So just tell us maybe a little bit about what you do, what your practice is like as a nurse practitioner here in Ottawa. Great. So I have a practice that deals with a, a variety of things, but I focus with both hormone replacement, uh, medically supervised weight loss and deal with a lot of autoimmune conditions specifically and have do that both for patients in the Ottawa area and all across Ontario. My, my practice is set up as a virtual delivery, which people thought I was crazy to get into five years ago, but now, now times have changed. <laughs> hey, that's a sign that you're a tr- trendsetter, Shannon. I love it. I love it already. Um, maybe before we get into uh, LDN, hormone, like you, you get involved in hormone replacement or, or hormone treatment. Uh, are we talking for males, females? Like wh- what's your typical patient population? So males and females, uh, really across the lifespan, but largely uh, the sort of 40 to 60-year-old males and females make up the majority of my practice um, from all walks of life. But it's, it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> Amazing. We might get into that a little bit at the end because we haven't talked on the show, too, about uh, some of the uh, menopause and then menopause. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll save some of that, but let's, let's jump into the low dose naltrexone. Like, so, she, so Tanya has been saying this for years, how there's a benefit for so many conditions and uh, little side effect profile. So what do we know about it? Like, what are the indications for low, do, low dose naltrexone? Why does it work? Why are you excited about it? Why do you feel like it's underutilized? Yeah, absolutely. So naltrexone has been a medication that's been around for several decades. It has been in use uh, for mostly around opioid disorders and alcoholism and whatnot. So the, the medication itself isn't necessarily novel. It's the dosing of it. And when we look at low dose naltrexone, which is generally dosed from one to five milligrams, it's actually been shown to reduce glial inflammatory response and uses the toll-like receptors for signaling to do so, which is using essentially the opioid receptors. So it, it uses that as a little trap door into cells to reduce that inflammatory activation, which this is what gives it huge implications because when we look at chronic disease, autoimmune disease across the spectrum, we're coming more and more aware of the role of inflammation in general in causing those. So the ability to reduce that then has applications in autoimmune diseases, complex regional pain syndromes, fibromyalgia, um, the list goes on, but to, to, to name a few, which is what makes it a sort of really applicable to when we start to look at chronic disease right now. It is tremendously underutilized. I mean, the reality is, is this isn't a new medication. So in terms of new applications going into places like Health Canada or FDA for on-use utilization, it just isn't going to happen because naltrexone is already on the market and the reality is is pharmaceutical companies are already making money off of it. And when we look at funding for large studies that looks at cause and effect and, and clinical indications, 
there isn't a lot of that happening because it's already been on the market and it's been on the market for a long time. I hear you. So what, what I'm hearing is, you know, it's a, essentially an anti-inflammatory. And if you look at, as Shannon said, all these ailments, the autoimmune, um, complex pain syndromes, I mean, to be honest with you, even everything that lands in ICU is inflammatory mediated. You know, we're, you know, we're still in the COVID era. You know, it's all inflammation. And so here's a medication that will reduce inflammation uh, through different pathways. Uh, and so to, to, to talk about the potential benefits uh, and potential low side effects profile, maybe we should be, this is, there's a lot of in, more indications that we maybe should be thinking about. So how about we put it this way, Shannon, like what are the typical indications that you're using it for in your patients? Yeah. So inflammatory bowel disease is a great example. And it, that's probably the most widely studied application of it with Crohn's and colitis, uh, especially looking at it as a supplementary, supplementary adjunct to uh, treatment. Uh, that's, probably one of the most that I see multiple sclerosis. I see a lot of, um, unfortunately the medications for MS often come with a large side effect profile. And, um, I have a lot of patients seek me out to look at the applications of LDN, uh, complex regional pain syndromes. I mean, we all know that they're difficult to treat. So everyone in healthcare knows they're extremely difficult to treat. We don't have a lot of indications for anything that has good evidence. And it is, um, great for anyone who we can restore part of their quality of life. What, and I, I want to touch on the side effect profile because I think you brought up a great point. One of the items that make this so appealing is because the side effect profile is very, very low. Obviously there's a few contraindications, meaning if you're narcotic dependent, then that's a bit of an issue. We can't use something that <laughs> blocks your narcotic receptors that could put you into withdrawal. Um, but short of that, most people tolerate LDN extremely well with very few significant side effects, which is what makes it um, a great application for clinical treatment. Amazing. Amazing. So I, I'm hearing, you know, IBD or, or, or like uh, inflammatory bowel disease. I'm hearing MS, uh, pain syndromes, like uh any like what about other autoimmune things like uh, thyroid disorders or anything along those lines? Or is there application there as well? Yes, I treat a lot of Hashimoto's thyroiditis with LDN, um, especially cases that have been refractory. They've had high antibodies going on for a long period of time. Um, and they do very, very well with it. In fact, the the one of the greatest things I see with LDN with Hashimoto's is it with with Hashimoto's because of that continuous inflammatory response that you'll sometimes get, you chase your tail a lot with trying to get the right medication dose because it's continuously changing with LDN. We definitely have a better stable point, which means we can actually get people on a, a stable dose of medication for the induced hypothyroidism that often occurs and not have to be changing that dose continuously. And subsequently patients don't have that fluctuation in symptoms, which from a function perspective, that's what they all tell you. It's like you feel good for a couple of weeks and then you feel terrible for a few weeks, which is part of the problem. And so with this treatment, so whether it's IBD, MS, or, or these complex pain syndromes, what does success look like? Like, are you seeing, is it like a, 
are you seeing some mild improvements? Are you seeing some dramatic improvements? Like, and, and is there specific groups that are, you're seeing a better response from? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I will say that evaluation of response to treatment is something that I think we're all often challenged with, right? To say that the success is the absence of disease is often not realistic with our current complex conditions. And I, I realize you're, you're very aware of that. So um, evaluation is much easier for people who have things we can see, quite frankly. This is one of the reasons why Crohn's disease is one of the most studied because quite frankly, you can go in and look at ulcers in the bowel and say, yes, these got better when, when all other treatments remain the same or no, they didn't. The other factors I'm often using, I try to use as objective measures as possible to evaluate, but at the end of the day, this comes down to subjective improvement in symptoms. And I'm very real with patients to say that, to say, what is the symptoms that bug you the most? How do we grade that for you? And when we come back six months later, which is to me a full trial, so at your dosing for a full six months, um, is that better? Because this is about improving functional outcomes. And if it doesn't do that, I'm always hesitant to say, is this a good fit? There's a few uh, exceptions to that, meaning Hashimoto's, for example, we actually have antibodies we can go in and look at. We do have some scenarios where it will bring antibodies down and not necessarily correct them. And the patient improves tremendously. We have other scenarios where it corrects the antibodies and functionally we haven't seen as much improvement. So there, I think we have to evaluate whether this is, this is um, the best solution for them or whether their inflammatory load has improved over time. Part of the other thing that makes it challenging is rarely are we just chewing LDN. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not here just to put somebody on a medication. I'm often also telling them to do a whole bunch of other things at the same time to improve their functional outcome, which of course makes it a little bit more challenging to evaluate cause and effect. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I do think uh, sometimes we get a little too, too uh, focused on, you know, is this medication, is this exact treatment, fixing your problem. Whereas I don't really, I don't really care if it's you give me two or three things at the same time. At the end of the day, if I feel better, that's all I care about. Um, so I, I do hear you. It can be a bit challenging when you're making several changes at the same time, but ultimately if this is a bundle that is, is associated with me feeling better, that's a W you know what I'm saying? I might be making this up in my head and forgive me if it's off uh, out of left field. Is there meant like mental health sides of LDN too, or not, uh, am I, uh, did I make that up? Uh, so, so uh, applications for it. Yeah. Like, a, yeah. like for mood stabilizing or for depression. I, am I, I totally could be making this up, but. No, there, there are some small studies looking at that. I will say there's not a ton of it. I don't use it a lot for primary uh, mood disorder. I go down the, the, the hormone rabbit hole with that one generally, but mm -hmm. I do look at it specifically for, um, like complex regional pain, sometimes with fibromyalgia, occasionally with PTSD, a uh, chronic fatigue, mm -hmm. that sort of bundle is more the application that I'll, I'll use it with. I gotcha. So ultimately we got, uh, um, in, in your practice, just, you know, a tool that has been able to help reduce inflammation, help patients feel better, uh, 
occasionally you'll see some objective measures, whether it's reducing, you know, in IBD, some uh, the bowel looks better, uh, antibody response in those with thyroid disorders. Um, so in your mind, underutilized tool that we could be uh, using more often within within healthcare. Yes, absolutely. I think someone told me once that we're, we're often very stuck in, and as clinicians, we definitely want there to be good clinical evidence to what we're doing. Absolutely. But rarely is there a slam sort of people don't come in little boxes. So the reality is, is rarely do we have a textbook and the patient matches the textbook identically. And that tells us the answer of what we should put them on. And it's this mix of clinical experience and evidence that we're putting together every day as clinicians to ultimately treat something. And I know that LDN is somewhat contentious with some of my peers in terms of the evidence and and what that looks like. Um, But I think it's underutilized because if we look at the evidence that we do have and the clinical experience in treating these inflammatory based uh, diseases, and also the fact that we don't have a lot of other options for treating a lot of them that, and the low side effect profile, that it's a win-win. Often when I'm seeing patients, they have been through many providers that have either offered them not great solutions or solutions that have not fixed their functional outcomes. And that's who's coming to me. And and it could be said that they got nothing to lose by the time they come to see me. Uh, But at the same time, they've been through lots of other options that didn't work. And does it work for everyone? No, I'm not claiming this is like the panacea of, of fixing all inflammatory issues. If it was, then I'd probably be living on a beach somewhere with my bum in the sand, to be quite honest. But um, the reality is, is it's one more tool that I think has lots of applications with very little to no risk of harm. I love it. I love it. I, I do think we, one thing we've done in medicine is, you know, wait for the absolute RCT with with uh, uh, meta-analysis and systematic reviews before applying some of these treatments to our patients. And I, I do think, you know, there's a downside to waiting. You, like there's, there's medications or treatments out there that have a harm profile that you want to be absolutely certain that, you know, you're not causing trouble. But a lot of meds out there, very low risk and potentially high reward that I think um, we got to really rethink our approach. Um, Cause yeah, I, I do think this is uh, something that we, we, we do need to shift our mindset a little bit. Like I think we've swayed a little bit too far on the has to be that RCT before applying some, some, some treatments to our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think <laughs> what, what better time to start to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, and just out of curiosity, do you have any, any stories come to mind of like a intervention with, with a patient that, you know, where the, the LDN has really made a difference in their functional outcomes? Yeah. So two, and, and both of these stories are not necessarily specific to one patient. I think there's two stories that stand out to me. One is, is with my inflammatory bowel patients, because often there are patients who come in and they're poorly controlled. They've tried everything, even biologics, or they've had a reaction to biologics. They're chronically on steroids, which we all know 
things like prednisone are, are horrible medications to be on long-term for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so I have patients that have stabilized with their inflammatory bowel disease and have not been on oral steroids for several years at this point, which that coming off of years of being on and off them sort of multiple times throughout the year, which that's a huge win for me. That's a huge success because the quality of life that goes with that for these patients is tremendous. That's not even looking at the clinical outcomes. Um, and, and this also the future subsequent health risk. I mean, there's significant health risk to being on um, oral steroids for long term. There's some people that need it and that's the reality of it. But it, it's a medication that definitely comes with risk. Uh, the other ones are definitely my Hashimoto's patients. I mean, I remember a patient saying to me, she's like, I've had my medication changed every eight weeks for the last three and a half years. And when you look up the burden of doing that, and sometimes we forget the burden of treatment for patients and think when we're asking them, they're often busy people, just like, just like healthcare professionals are, but we're asking them, okay, you need to go for your blood work. You need to book that follow-up appointment. You need to pick up your medication from the pharmacy. All of that takes time and adds to the burden of that disease of how they feel. And that's not even including the symptoms they're getting. So the, the patients that say, you know what, we've, had I've had to change my medication so many times. So to not have to change my medications for six months, she's like, I feel like I got so many hours of my life back. And, and that to me is a huge win because at the end of the day, that's what we're here for, right? It's, it's kind of the notion of you're coming from ICU. We can keep people on life support for a very long time. But the reality is if they can't regain some of their functioning, then what are we doing it for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, that's what I love to hear. Like being able to get people back to where they need to be or want to be. And uh, so, yeah, I really want to commend you, Shannon, for bringing this to our attention. And I hope uh, it opens some of our eyes, you know, like to, that there are some treatments out there that are, you know, outside the box un- that are unconventional that could really dramatically impact uh, people's lives. Yeah. And I think we make, we make assumptions about like, we have very polarized opinions right now, I think, especially about what we think we need to do and there's right and there's wrong. And, and, and that's a bit of a slippery slope because often the optimal treatment is not polarized. It's a mix of things. Rarely is it ever any one thing. And so often when I have patients, I'm asking them to do lots of health promotion things. And you'll listen to my patients be like, yeah, she told me to exercise again. She told me to to engage in mindfulness again. And, and they, but at the end of the day, I also realized that in order to do those things, we have to give these patients some of, we, we know that those are good for a variety of conditions and lots of autoimmune conditions specifically. Um, but we have to give them some of their life back to enable them to do that because otherwise we're giving them something else on that to-do list, something else that they feel they can't get through or don't feel well enough to get through. So it does become a balancing act. I want them to be engaging in exercise and ensuring they're getting some vitamin D and early morning light and mindfulness-based practices, but we have to give them a quality of life that they're able to do that. And, and often we sometimes forget that. Yeah, that is a, a fantastic point, Shannon. Like, um, yeah, no, I, I honestly, I, I think, um, what comes down to is like be able to create an environment where people can win, <laughs> could win again. And, uh, 
No, I just really want to commend you for doing that. Shannon, maybe I want we could pivot a little bit and talk about the hormone replacement. But then you you, got, you actually tickled my ear a little bit about how, how you, you're approaching things holistically with your patients, because this is one of the, the things that we, we really preach on our wellness platform, um, which, by the way, we'll send you a membership so you could give us some 411 on this bad boy solving wellness. Yeah, I mean, maybe just talk briefly about, you know, some of the the approaches that you have with your patients, because uh, you hit on a couple really important points. Yeah. So, I I mean, I like the word wellness and it's interesting when I talk to people about weight loss, I actually call it well weight. I want you to find your well weight, meaning I want you to find a weight that you feel good at and that you feel like you're getting your functioning back and we're optimizing your wellness rather than this focus on you need to lose weight or you will get X, Y, and Z, right? Because that doesn't work for people. We know that psychologically, there's no psychological training on the face of the earth that say that will be a successful program. So it's, it is about, I talk about that notion of being polarized, that we have this notion set up in our healthcare system that we have disease treatment and we kind of section out and, and then have this whole panacea of wellness that's outside of really public funding and, and things like that. And, and often traditionally, and I talk a lot about interprofessional practice, it's a huge passion of mine we have set up a system that really puts all of these providers in their silos and tries to assign sort of certain activities to them. And and that's really a backwards model in, in my opinion, that, that at the end of the day, there's definitely not going to be one thing that's generally going to solve this. And I also practice in primary care in the community and, and primary care, I think is a great example of where we're, we try to do it, but the reality is, is what we're left with and what we see in our office is so much disease management that the opportunity to do wellness support rarely happens. And if we could think about rather than necessarily say one is right and one is wrong about how we blend those things, that would be magical. And and building that's about building relationships between healthcare providers. And it's also about then getting patients on board that this isn't, this isn't, there's no magic fix, but this is going back to some of the basics and getting everyone on board with that. I think it's sort of the foundation of my clinical practice. I, I, I must say, I also really like the idea that you're talking about not like not having cookie cutter solutions for all these cats. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's you got to think about what works for for people and and have it more personalized. You talked about some of the elements, though. I think it would be worth we'd be remiss not to mention. Like you talked about exercise, getting vitamin D, mindful meditation. Like, is this something that you know? Like, what are your key kind of categories when it comes to these things? So uh, you named a few of them. So exercise is a, is a big one. And as I say to people, I don't expect you to train for a marathon, but I need you to move your body. That's what this boils down to. And making that accessible for everyone. I have uh, a patient who's 98 years old who does weights and she calls them her calisthenic exercises and warm up every single day. We know that mobility is actually one of the biggest, if not the biggest predictor of how we will age full stop. It has the most evidence around uh, reducing the risk of 
mild cognitive decline into dementia. It outperforms any medication we can possibly look at because there isn't one. So mobility is huge for me. It, it is a massive, I say, you got to move it or you lose it is kind of how it boils down. Uh, hormone function, which we can talk about a little bit more. I mean, hormones realistically are not just what we traditionally think of as our sex and thyroid hormones, but even vitamin D acts like a hormone within the body and how that entire cascade works for things like inflammation, et cetera. Um, diet and, and looking at the type of diet we eat is also a focus within myself and a big part of wellness, I believe. Reality is, is our food sourcing and where our food comes from and what we've developed intolerances to has changed dramatically in the last 50 years and is having implications on health. Um, sleep. We need sleep. We need good quality sleep. As, and I say to people, it's not necessarily about the number of hours, but it's about when you get up, you need to feel rested because Lord. you're so that you can get through your day. I mean, we know this has impacts on people. Unfortunately, shift workers have a shortened lifespan and we know that. Um, so uh, mindfulness-based practices, mindfulness-based practices has more evidence than a lot of other treatment recommendations we make is the reality of it. And I often say to people, I, I joke with them that finding a mindfulness-based practice is like finding your favorite underwear. I need you to try on a whole bunch of different <laughs> kinds, okay? And when you find the one you like, you just stick to that one. And it's it's going to be a good fit for you, which people laugh, but they remember that. And it's it's not necessarily about just meditation. I think you can probably get a flavor. Meditation's not a good fit for me. I can't hardly sit still for 20 minutes. Um, but it, you have mindfulness, you have meditation, you have guided imagery, you have sleep stories, you have um, yoga based practices. Like the, there's a huge sort of bucket there. And I, as I tell people, I don't care which one you do. I just want you to find one that you like and stick to it. And the effect that that has on both our primitive brain, like when we start looking at our hippocampus with functional imaging and our more complex brain, like our frontal cortex is tremendous. And the fact that you have one intervention that actually has activity on functional imaging on both of those areas in the brain is kind of mind blowing when you think about that as, as a healthcare provider. So, and when we start to look at now, now you've got me to go down a rabbit hole here, but when you start to look at, when you start to look at how the implications with that and our sympathetic nervous response and some of our primitive reflexes and the implications of that, both in, um, mood, anxiety disorders, even in uh, when we start to look at concussion and head injury, PTSD, it is a, it is, the potential there is, is huge, huge. Um, so those are kind of some of the, the, I kind of describe health to people as a wagon wheel where we have sort of the patient in the center of that wagon wheel. And we have all of these spokes that really help to support that wheel of wellness that is, is so important. And I put that in terms of general wellness. I really drive home that point in terms of weight loss in particular. The biggest lie we've been telling people for years is weight loss is as simple as calories in calories out. If it was, we would all be skinny. Let's just be honest. Right. Um, like my five-year-old can do that math. Um, and it's about integrating all of those things together. And, and that's so important. Um, I will, I often make a case for uh, psychology care too, to say counseling, everyone can benefit from counseling. You don't need to be in a crisis. 
And, and all of those pieces kind of come together in terms of what I describe for people as, as wellness. And you'll, you'll note that disease management, <laughs> I try to keep, the whole point is to keep that one off your wagon wheel, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, like intervene before that's a player. Yeah, exactly. like I, I like a couple, really enjoyed a couple of the points. Number one, sleep quality. I think sometimes we, we under, underappreciate that. Like I, just anecdotally, I must say, like sometimes I'll have, say your post call and you'll have a six hour sleep or six and a half hours sleep, but it's deep, like it's deep. Like you don't remember your head hitting a pillow. You kind of wake up at the end of a cycle and you're like, good that day. You know what I mean? So maybe it's not the seven and a half hours that I would love to have had, but the, the quality of the sleep was in a dark room. You know what I'm saying? Had my eye covers on, my earplugs on, had my blue blocking glasses on before going to bed, staying away from screens, even though I'm not that be- not that good at uh, staying away from screens at night. Like quality matters. I like what you said too about mindfulness practice that it's not, it's not a uh, cookie cutter as well. Like you find what works for you. You know what I'm saying? It, 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 like I like, as, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm similar. Like I'm doing this podcast standing up. I like to move. Um, so like having a, a, like a movement based practice, like I like for me personally, I like the walking meditation, I like uh, stretching uh, that to me works the same way, but I also do a, uh, a nightly um, uh, mindfulness meditation too. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, I, I think finding what works for you is I really love hearing that. Uh, I love uh, the movement. I think people, you know, we preach this a lot, but you want to age well, you got to be able to move and you got to avoid that frailty aspect. That is frailty is the new smoking or whatever you want to like strength is a new black. How about that? Okay. Like uh, you just, uh, I think this is an underrated tool uh, in terms of being an anti-aging therapy and the thing that I'm, I want to poke you a bit too, um, about uh, the hormone side of things, because once again, this is a bit novel for me. I, you know, you hear about, you know, people going on, you know, their their hormone replacement. Obviously, perimenopausal, postmenopausal uh, females. You hear about that a lot. You don't hear too much about the male side. So, just in terms of your approach general approach you could focus maybe on the female side first like what what uh how the approach is what's important what are the important considerations does vitamin d come into play in in some of this what do you think shannon yeah i think that what i will sort of look at is interventional endocrinology is is going to i think that will be a huge area of growth in in coming years because the reality is is that our, our lifestyle, number one, has lots of endocrinology disruptors, unfortunately, with chemicals and products, with the change in food and whatnot. And we know that our outcomes change in, in basis of our hormones. If we even use most simplistically women going into menopause, well, osteoporosis is a huge issue with women because when they lose their estrogen, the reality is, is bone density starts to decrease. And we've just talked about mobility being such an important predictor of how well you age. Well, guess what? Your mobility is non-existent if you fall and break your hip. It doesn't happen. <laughs> and, and it's actually the, the rate of death within one year of hip fracture is tremendously high. So 
we know that the the application of hormones and is important for maintaining some of our basic principles of wellness that we've just talked about. When we start to look at changes in, we know that there's an age where you will get changes in mood and that's specifically, that's not, it's better studied in women, but it's not specific to women. There's actually been some new research released about men in particular and younger men having lower rates of testosterone and what that relationship looks like. There's, there's implications to things like lead toxicity and the whole nine yards. So, and, and the reality is, is when you don't have those hormones on board, there are poor health outcomes noted. And that's without even talking about the suffering that happens. So, so menopause has kind of been like this come after the women's health initiative study that scared the pants off everyone and everyone kind of got thrown out with the, where hormones are terrible. We're not going to put anyone on them. Well, we failed to look at that women in particular, I would say these, some women really suffer through menopause. There's lots of symptoms and yes, hot flashes, hot flashes gets lots of, lots of air. Right. But there's also genitourinary dysfunction. So incontinence and, and please tell me uh, a living adult who enjoys peeing themselves and thinks that that's okay. Right. Like that's not a thing. Nobody likes to do that. If we can prevent it, we should prevent it. Um, and when we start to look at mental health changes and cognitive fog and sleep disruption that comes with those changes in hormones, that's tremendous. And we see the same types of changes happen in men when they develop low testosterone. I mean, they get sleep dysfunction, they get mood changes, an area of interest of, of mine that's emerging is around um, PTSD and head injury and looking at the role of hormones in that. We know that there's something with that because teenage girls are actually the, the group with the highest rate of persistent concussion symptoms, um, which is a, a group that has huge fluctuations in hormones. Um, and there are some groups looking at treating head injury specifically with hormones. So though we forget sometimes about the outcomes that are all tied to that and how it ties into all of those, those sort of points of wellness and hormones touch on all of those. They're integral to how our, our cells adapt and how we respond to um, stressors, both internal and external. For real. Like, I think this is one of these things that um, I think is underappreciated. Like, I, I think, um, you know, during the, you know, the perimenopausal period, a lot of people are struggling. Like you, I, I see it amongst my colleagues at work and, you know, they'll insinuate it, but like you, you see it like they're that brain fog, the lack of sleep, mood swings, like all these things. Um, and so, you know, I don't think we need to throw the baby or the out with the bath. Well, I get my metaphors mixed up. Oh, baby, baby out with the bath water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with the shoes on um like yeah we want to we don't need to necessarily approach it that way like once again we got to think about personalizing things and maybe it's the dosing that's needs to be altered maybe it's a shorter uh, dosing intervals like we don't you know what i mean like we, i think there's a opportunity to to mitigate some of these symptoms and and without without necessarily you know um, you know, putting people at risk. I, I, but once again, this is not my wheelhouse. Like uh, I, I yeah. can say that we started using a little bit of this in the ICU actually for patients that are deconditioned. We've been uh, supplementing with uh, testosterone uh, and uh, I don't want to get too ahead of the game here, but 
I can't, some of the results that we've seen in front of our eyes has been incredible, actually. Well, and people forget that the most abundant hormone in the body for males and females, pause on that for a second, males and females is testosterone. Yeah. For females too. It's, it's not, it's the, testosterone is a fundamental hormone that I think is tremendously undervalued. And when we talk about mobility, sort of going back to that, testosterone is really important because it's really important for muscle recovery. Um, testosterone, it's not going to make you like Hulk. Cause I say, if I give you some testosterone, I'm not going to make you into a bodybuilder that like, I understand the implications of where it's used in the fitness industry. But the reality is, is that muscle recovery is a fundamental rejuvenation process that happens in every single person, every single day. And testosterone is important for that. And, and I, by no means, there are people who are not good candidates for, um, for hormones. And there are some people that cannot take them because of their risk profile. And, and that's important to recognize, but that group is much smaller than most people give credit for. It's, it's a very small group of people that are truly contraindicated from, from being on, on hormones, but yeah, testosterone, that's, that's super fascinating to me. I get very excited talking about testosterone, both for men and women. Cause I think it's, it's underutilized. We talk about Definitely the libido properties for, for postmenopausal women. In fact, Health Canada recognizes testosterone as an on-label treatment for low libido postmenopause. Um, but there's some other uh, sort of fundamental uses of testosterone that are really fascinating. Testosterone is also a great uh, perpetuator of bone density and the activity that it has on um, your, your bone maintenance activity. So it's, it's awesome. Oh, that makes me very excited to hear that you guys have, have, are, are wandering into that field in ICU. <laughs> yeah. No, no pressure. Uh, Hillary magazine, if you listen to this, but we're going to hustle, get to some of these publications out. Yo, like, uh, I think we're onto something for real. Um, and and, and maybe it will be important to touch on Shannon, like, uh, some of the risks or like contraindications that you're aware of for like, for people not to be on, uh, hormone replacement therapy yeah so if you've had uh, a history of blood clots which comes in a in a variety of ways shapes and forms right so if you've had a stroke a heart attack a, a blood clot in your lungs a blood clot in your legs um or have a family history for a genetic clotting disorder that puts you at significantly high risk estrogen in particular is is contraindicated um when we look at testosterone there are some implications to that as well based on um, the increase in red blood cells or the uh, erythrocytosis or the polycythemia, which are two different things, which can occur with the uh, testosterone activity. But that's actually a relatively low and that just needs to be monitored for outcomes. Hormone-mediated cancer, so an extremely high risk of those um, is a consideration. I will say there's lots of effort going into how we can mitigate that because some of our cancer patients, particularly breast cancer patients, would tremendously benefit from outcomes if we could find a solution for them. But at this point, obviously, if you have a hormonally mediated uh, type of cancer, breast cancer is the one that gets the most air, but realistically, we're also looking at ovarian cancer and, and prostate cancer as well. Um, those are often considered contraindications. It needs to be specifically looked at by the provider, but are, are sort of to make a blanket statement contraindications. Hormones are also all processed by the liver, which that's a bit concerning for me because we know that there's a fatty liver epidemic happening right now, which is a bit of a problem. And 
for people who get severe uh, liver compromise, use of hormones is also is also contraindicated. So th- this is looking at people who have cirrhotic liver disease, and, and but anything before that is is generally well tolerated. Amazing. That's a beautiful summary, Shannon. And so overall, probably uh, uh, underutilized uh, approach to people as we're aging. I, I do think part of the problem is like uh, with, uh, with some of the hormone replacement therapy, you know, it's associated with, as you said, like, yo, we're gonna, I want to bulk up. I've seen what happened to some of these bodybuilders and, and, and wrestlers and, 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 thinking that the doses are going to be astronomical, whereas it's not even, even uh, like the proportions are, or the dosing is, is like low compared to what you're seeing or hearing about on, on the media. So, yeah, I just think it's a, it's something that people should acknowledge it might be appropriate them from their toolbox. Cause once again, what's the overall goal, get you feeling better, get you moving, m- avoiding you getting frail, um, keeping you sane so your family still loves you. Uh, and so <laughs> all these things are so, are so important. Anything else we're missing, you think, from the hormone side, uh, Shannon? No, I think that's a great high-level overview on, on sort of the applications of hormones. It's much broader than what people expect it to be. And I will say that I really have women in particular coming to me because of hot flashes. They come to me because of all the other symptoms we don't talk about as much. Like they feel like they're losing their mind. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and if nothing else if people just take this as an opportunity to actually talk to the woman beside them about it i think our world would be a better place 100 100 percent, shannon let me tell you this has been a slice I, I feel like we have a lot more to talk about you know what i mean like i feel like we only scratch the surface with the, the overall health and wellness stuff like i would want to pick your brain a little bit on your approach to exercise a little bit more i also like to you know, we never had a nurse practitioner on the show. Like, oh, I would love to dive into like the benefits of of uh, nurse practitioners because, like, I think that's a vastly underutilized asset within healthcare, especially as we're having human resource issues. But yeah, I want to thank you for this lovely high level overview, and um, we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show. I think just to dive into some of these other. Uh, other topics awesome i would be it would be most welcome shannon lastly where can people get a hold of you yeah absolutely so i am uh active on the world wide web which is a great (laughs) way to meet with people what can i say um i have a website that uh, you'll know it's me you'll see my smug little face that looks like that's there that is s-k-r my initials health Dot com. So easy to find. There's more information about sort of overview of different programs I have, as well as contact information for my clinic at the website. So skrhealth.com. Proper, proper. Shannon, you heard it there. Check out her site. Dive into some of this. Her, her materials are going to be luscious and tremendous. Shannon, thank you so much, as always. Quarkcast Nation, I hope you found that ultra helpful. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave that five-star rating, y'all. We're trying to change that boogie, and it helps with the visibility of the show when you leave that five-star rating on 
wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, changing the boogie for real. Jump on to solvingwellness.com, supporting our healthcare providers throughout the nation. And in anticipation, so I just had to make a rhyme. <laughs> anyway, guys, we love you. Have a safe and glorious week, and we'll connect again real soon. Peace.